0: So normally I would be saying good evening everyone, but instead of evening we're actually doing this at 4 p.m. in the eastern time zone in the United States. So I'm going to say good afternoon or possibly good morning for those of you that are joining us from Indonesia at 4 a.m. I thank all of you for being here and for being such dedicated educators. Um, I hope that their teachers and administrators and students appreciate you. Um, but if they don't, we appreciate you here at the Global Math Department and appreciate you being here. My name is Lee Natero and I will be hosting this afternoon. This afternoon, we're gonna be hearing from Dr. Jenny Senkova about math revolution needed in geometry. Um, we've already had most of you introduce yourselves in the chat window, but if you haven't already introduced yourself, please do so at this time, letting us know what you teach, where you teach and what your Twitter handle is if you have one. So before I introduce our speaker, let me explain a little bit about how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available approximately 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you would come back to the same URL you used to get here today. The Global Math Committee prides itself on being friendly and supportive the chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll catch your questions for the presenter, so don't worry that she won't notice it in the chatter. So, our speaker is Dr. Jenny Sankova. Uh, Dr. Sankova is a full professor of mathematics education at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island, and she teaches the mathematics method courses for elementary and secondary pre service teachers. She is currently modeling lessons, consulting, and providing in-service training for teachers in various school systems in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Dr. Sankova's recent research interests have focused on the geometric reasoning of middle and high school students and the integration of international best practices in education and teacher pre-service and in-service training. She's a founder and teacher in a mathematics K-12 after-school program, Number Street Math Academy in Easton, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Sankova. Thank you very
1: much, Lee, and welcome, everyone. I'm very excited to finally um, have this talk um, about geometry. Geometry is a love of mine, and um, I have noticed that my secondary math teachers have um, the weakest understanding in geometry. Roger Williams University, where I teach, does not have a geometry course for the secondary uh, math majors. And they come to me um, with only their understanding of what they've learned in high school. Um, So that has been a challenge for me to help my Um, secondary students. The same thing with the elementary uh, students that come to Roger Williams. On the other hand, I teach in my after-school program students in grades 9 and 10, geometry, and I am trying to, to make sure that they get what they need to get in their geometric understanding and as well as kind of follow the rules um, in their high school mathematics classroom. In addition to that, uh, for the past couple of years, I worked with the geometry team in a vocational school here in Massachusetts. And they had a challenging goal. Um, After they took away vacations and holidays, they were left with 54 days teaching days for the year, because, you know, they have one year of teaching and one year, or one week of teaching and one week of shop. So they had to figure out how to teach geometry for 54 days without sacrificing the rigor and the mathematical topics. So we had to sieve through variety of topics and figure out how to teach in the best way to be able to accomplish this goal. Okay, so here are some key ideas that I'm going to focus today. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about why we teach geometry, when is the best time to teach geometry, and what are the different ways that we need to do that. And looking at the common core standards um, for teaching and learning and the connections to geometry, we're going to focus a little bit on the idea of proof, how we teach it in school, and what are the best ways for students to um, access the challenging idea of proof. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about the language of geometry and the need for students to memorize a lot of the terms, and sometimes that's challenging for them. And we're going to look at one or two traditional topics that we teach um, uh, from historical and contemporary perspective. So... Um, This is a nice cartoon I found about geometry, um, because I'm sure you will share um, my thinking that geometry is the love of two students in a high school, and um, it doesn't seem to be the most... appealing subject to them out of the math strands um, in high school, while at the same time in elementary and middle school, students really enjoy working um, in geometry and measurement. So what happens in high school? Is it the level of readiness? Is it the pace? Is it the rigor of the study? And what are some alternatives that we can consider? So here are what some students think about geometry as I interview all the students that come to me every year. So here's Jessica in an honors geometry. Um, She likes to solve problems. She loves algebra. But she doesn't like geometry. And many, many students would say, I love algebra. And you know that they love algebra because they like to have an equation and work through the an equation and they know the steps. And that's what algebra is all about. And then Madison um, says that there are too many things to remember. And she doesn't see the point of that. And finally, Matt, a 10th grade geometry Um, kid. Um, He says, there's no logic in the proofs. Most of the time you just repeat what is given or you have to state obvious information like a common side as reflexive property. And looking at these um, students' quotes, uh, I think that many of them are very valid and we need to be thinking about them. So on the other hand, what do... um, teachers think about geometry. Uh, Many geometry teachers will tell you that students are not ready for the level of geometry um, that's expected. Um, Geometry teachers, and some of you are, um, think that when you teach um, a year of geometry, you necessarily have to teach algebra, so the students have to make connections between geometry and algebra, and now the Common Core Standards ask us while we're teaching geometry to do a considerable amount of teaching in statistics. And many of us teach a little bit of trig. So now that students have to do a a considerable amount of working in transformations and um, in constructions, um, it seems a lot of teachers would like to have some professional development in order to do that, um, to to, to give it a good... uh, brush upon some of the new ideas that they need to teach. Okay, so this is an essential uh, document that I'm sure many of you have looked at. It is um, Catalyzing Change in High School Mathematics. And this is an NCTM document published in 2018. And um, there, there's a a part devoted specifically to geometry in a very, I would say, informal way. Um, Geometry means measure the Earth. Geometry connects mathematics to life, and ancient people used geometry and measurements to measure land, to navigate the seas, to build, I mean, cathedrals and bridges have been built years ago, and they still stand. And they didn't have the complicated technology that we have nowadays. So this is important for students to see and understand why we teach geometry. Um, When do we teach geometry? Um, Traditionally, in United States schools, a lot of students go through a year of geometry, between algebra one and algebra two. With the common core state standards, several schools in Massachusetts um, decided to go and teach um, ninth and 10th grade um, geometry. So the geometry taught two years in a row, um, but not every day, maybe two or three times a week. And at the same time, students are either taking algebra one and Algebra 2, again, not every day. Um, And this has been tried to um, see whether geometry is going to be better um, remembered, explored, understood as it goes through an extended period of time uh, because students need continuous reinforcement. Um, As we all know, in many European countries, um, mathematics is taught every, geometry in particular, is taught every year, at least 40% of the amount of mathematics is geometry. So, students never actually stop learning geometry um, from elementary to middle to high school. And finally, how we teach geometry and how do we make connections between mathematical ideas, especially the modeling connection that the Common Core Standards insist on us trying to do. So um, for the uh, purpose of this talk um, and looking at the initiating critical conversations, um, a proof is a process. So to prove is um, a challenge for both teachers and students. To prove um, is not to follow a recipe, but um, to discover. to to solve a puzzle, to attempt to solve a problem by connecting axioms and theorems into a uh, compelling argument. Um, To discover is to build creatively, to involve intuition and logical thinking. Um, And it's also um, to be able to communicate and explain one's reasoning. Um, And to certify a proof is to be able to, to critique the reasoning of others. And this is not just from the teacher, but also from the students. Students need to be able to certify a proof. So again, um, for the sake of this talk, we're gonna um, define uh, proof as an argument, um, which convinces people that something is true. So if I can convince you that something is true and it follows my logical reasoning based on Um, definitions and axioms and theorems um, and I am able to understand why and you're able to understand why something is true. Um, The other thing which I also think is important in a math classroom is that we agree with the students that once we prove a theorem, and I would like students to um, prove it as well, then we all agree to use it from that point on as a fact as a stepping stone for other proofs. So for example, once I have proven that the mid-segment of a triangle is parallel to the base and half of it, then I don't have to prove it anymore. Now I know that and I can keep going and using it in um, other problems. So we distinguish three types of proofs, direct, indirect, and by induction. Induction is usually not used as much in the high school curriculum, but I think it's it's good from time to time to explain to students what it means to prove by induction. And sometimes I may use uh, problem-solving types of problems to do that. A direct proof is what we usually do by using prior knowledge, postulates and theorems. Direct proof is also used, um, is using transformation and direct proof is a proof by construction. You wouldn't necessarily see this as a separate proof, but I think it should be included as a separate proof, any type of drawing auxiliary lines, you know, altitudes and so on, or, or when we start with, making a construction, then the proof that follows could be called a proof by construction. An indirect proof is by contradiction or by assumption um, something is true. So in catalyzing change in high school mathematics, um, NCTM emphasizes the use and validation of a variety of proofs. So NCTM uh, specifies that Students should um, look at variety of proofs. They should um, show their understanding um, using um, you know, bullet list, um, paragraph, um, anything that makes sense. So for example, let's look at um, the following task. Um, you're given a segment XZ and the midpoint Y. You have to prove that xz is twice the length of X, y. Please take a look at solution a for a second. And then look at solution B. Solution a is the textbook solution, and solution B is the student so- a student solution. So one would agree that solution B kind of tells us that the student does not really consider this problem as a problem to be solved in terms of providing a proof. So the student doesn't think that we need to argue this proof. Um, on the other hand, of course, we know that the double column proof that we see it's very well organized contains appropriate mathematical reasoning. I mean, still, even if we consider the task worthy of a proof, the task is certainly not difficult, you would agree. And still, the textbook wrote six lines of statements and reasoning for this easy task. And one might wonder, um, how long might a proof be for a more complicated problem? Um, and also, let's take a look at these questions. What is the big idea involved in the problem that we just looked at? So what's the big idea? Is it the idea of a segment? Is it the idea of a, of a definition of a midpoint? Is it um, the importance to understand proofs? And why is a double column proof required for this problem? Why is a textbook showing this proof as a, an important proof or a necessary proof? And in this particular task, what are the students discovering? And what are they communicating? And what are they certifying? And I would argue that they're not discovering anything that it's very complicated and not required to make communicate that understanding in the form of a double-column proof. And certifying that double-column proof is taxing at best. And finally, where's the rigor? The rigor is certainly in following the proof, the double-column proof, but it's certainly there's no rigor in... Um, solving if it could be solved, this kind of a problem. So, for many people, double-column proof is synonymous with high school geometry. In fact, many teachers cannot imagine the study of geometry without the use of double-column proof. Um, And one would assume that expectations for writing proofs would be consistent across all classrooms. Um, These two researchers, um, Dimmel and Herbst, published in May of 2018 in the Journal of Research in Math Education, a study where they looked at 44 high school teachers and especially they looked at their instructional practice of certifying a proof. So the results of the study confirmed that the writing of a double column proof is most often in this classroom viewed as a direct proof taught in the high school geometry. Um, teachers spent an enormous amount of time teaching students how to write and check proofs line by line to make sure they're acceptable and that students provide reasons for each statement. However, Um, teachers had different expectations for details when checking the double-column proofs. Um, Teachers focused primarily on the writing of the proof and not really on the cognitive demand of the mathematics embedded in the problems. In other words, writing and certifying the double-column proof line by line was more important than the rigor and the discovery that we would like the students to experience in geometry so why do we teach double column proof do you think it helps with organization Um, it certainly does for many students it does help with organization but it doesn't help for all of them um is it preparing um, students for college work? No, the double-column proof is not used in college mathematics classes. Is it expected on a college entrance examinations such as SAT or ACT? No, it is not used on any standardized test. Does it increase mathematical vigor? It does not. Uh, More than that, it's near inefficient to use a double-column proof for a multi-step problem. So then if a double-column proof is not used or is not used all the time, then what can students do to demonstrate that they understand proofs? NCTM recommends that students may want to write a narrative, a bulleted list, or some kind of explanation that they communicate, can communicate. Again, all the time, the question is, what are the students learning? What do I need to see as a teacher, as evidence that a student understands? Consider the following more challenging example, and it's a very common proof of the exterior angle theorem. So take a look at the textbook um, solution in... Um, solution A, and then the student solution, um, solution B. So take a second to do that. I wish there was a way that we can communicate, as I'm sure there are a lot of things that you would like to talk about as you're looking at that. Um, The textbook solution certainly demonstrates all appropriate mathematical reasons for each statement. However, one would agree that solution B is accessible to most students, and it may not have the right titles about the the theorems involved, but it certainly demonstrates that the student understands the mathematical ideas and can apply them in solving problems. And I would certainly accept um, a proof like that. So let's focus on rigor. So the next, this is a problem that I'd like you to take a sheet of paper and um, try it. So notice the prior knowledge um, is that the students know the isosceles triangles theorem, meaning if two sides of a triangle are congruent, then the angles opposite those sides are also congruent. And the other knowledge students need to have to to solve this problem, and as a teacher, you might want to remind them, is that there are 360 degrees um, around a point. So, here is the problem. You give an equilateral triangle ABC. On sides BC and AC outside of the triangle are constructed two squares and probably labeled. So, when I teach, I wait for students to um, construct. I mean, you don't have to construct them. You can just, you know, draw them um, by yourself. And hopefully, this is a way for students to really get into the um, problem, even if they don't do the um, drawing correctly at the beginning. I want them to have an insight of what's going on. And then um, I'm giving you the picture, and I'm going to give you a minute to see what you can do.
0: Jenny, there's a request to see the question again. Oh, sure. So. It's very hard when you don't see the people. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Maybe we uh, we can pause it here just for 30 seconds and so pe- sure. people can try to draw their own picture of it 1st Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Lee, are you solving it too? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the picture. As, as you can see, ABC is the equilateral triangle in the center. And out of it, are two squares constructed with length AC of the side and CB. So you have to find the measures of the angles of triangle FBE or EFB, the one that's um, in black.
0: Should I go on? Maybe give us a, another 30 seconds to think about just another little bit more. Okay. Math teachers
1: never give up. I know that. <laughs> but I couldn't not place a problem. <clears throat>
0: I believe we're being, there's a question about what we're proving. I think it's just finding the measures of the angles of triangle FBE. That's
1: exactly what it is. We're just finding the measures of the interior angles of triangle um, EFB. That's all. Okay. So here is the beginning of it. We talked about that the prior knowledge is that around a point, there's a measure of 360 degrees. So around around point C, um, we know that there are um, two angles of 90 degrees. Here they are because these are the squares. And then triangle ABC, this is 60 degrees because it is an equilateral triangle. So out of 360 degrees around this point, we can subtract the two 90 degree angles and the 60 degrees. And we came out that angle FCE, is 120 degrees. Okay, so we're looking at triangle FCE. We know that this is 120 degrees and we know that this is an isosceles triangle because these two sides are sides of same size squares. And since it's an isosceles triangle, across congruent sides lie congruent angles. So 180 minus 120 is 60 divided by two is 30. So this is 30 degrees, oops, and the other one is 30 degrees. Similarly, triangle F C. B, this one is also isosceles and the acute um, angles, it's also isosceles and an acute angles are 15 and finally triangle ECB also isosceles. Um, 45, 45, 90. Okay, so the answers. I'm sure this is not considered a very difficult problem for students. By the way, this is an eighth grade problem. And um, it's certainly a more challenging problem in terms of the number of steps involved. It does require considerable cognitive effort for students to stay with the problems and explore it. And it would present a considerable difficulty for those of us who try to write a double-column proof. Again, here is a little bit more difficult problem, which, as you see, requires at least four steps. I mean, these are just four main steps, but a lot of things to consider, a lot of things to write. And nobody's considering writing a double-column proof but it certainly, we can appreciate the logical reasoning that goes into this problem. It is an interesting problem. It's a demanding problem. It asks for application and understanding of mathematical idea rather than on restating known facts and reproducing names of postulates and definitions. So, in fact, for more complicated problems, in, or I would say more demanding problems in terms of length, nobody uses a double-column proof. Um, So, I would like to bring in um, the second topic of um, our talk today, which is vocabulary and memorization. So, let me ask you this question. How many different angle measures are there when we have two parallel lines cut by a transversal? And the answer is two. Usually students would say something like I don't know, two, three, four, five, six, because they're looking and thinking about the corresponding, the interior alternate, the exterior alternate, all of those angles, uh, pairs of angles that they're looking at. But they never really think about that there are only two angles that um, they need to be thinking about. And um, I've talked to enough um, high school students to see that the amount of vocabulary that they're asked to remember and restate um, and recall for that simple concept um, is kind of preventing students to understand the big ideas. So what I do, I usually um, use patty paper, P-A-T-T-Y, kind of a, you know, um, transparent paper. And what I do, I draw two lines and um, a transversal, and I label the vertical angles alpha and beta. So students know that the vertical angles are congruent. Then what I would do is I take the patty paper, copy the angle, the angles alpha and beta, just them with the first line and the transversal. And then I move down the patty paper, for the students to see that in fact, these are exactly the same angles. It really helps for students to see that they can visually move the angles from the top um, intersection to the bottom intersection when you have two lines, parallel lines cut by a transversal. That helps them visualize the mathematical idea and understand what's going on all of the vocabulary with all of those pairs of angles will come later. Um, in fact, in, in many European countries, all of these vocabulary for these pairs of angles are not taught at all. Students just need to know that there are two angles, the verticals, and they are um, supplementary and Everything else comes into place. So sometimes we need to be thinking critically about this. In other words, what is it that the students need to know and understand out of this activity in order for the activity to be more accessible? Again, vocabulary will come. Um, In a way, vocabulary is a little bit self-explanatory when you talk about it. But when I want the students to solve problems and sometimes I ask them, take this, you know, intersection and move it away from the problem so that you can see the pairs of angles on their own, it does help them to visualize the petty paper. The last topic I want us to talk about is constructions. So, constructions are traditional topics. They We've been taught constructions... I've been taught construction when I was a kid, and nowadays students are making the same constructions. So, for example, we ask the students to perform basic construction. Every textbook contains instructions on how to do that. Um, Students learn to accomplish them, but they rarely see connections with other mathematical ideas. In fact, most of the time, we never come back to those constructions. Um, Students are not asked to use that knowledge in subsequent problems. So, um, for example, construction of a perpendicular bisector. Do the kids understand the steps? And why do we need to know this, they ask. Um, So... Constructing a right angle is one of the most valuable skills used by ancient people. I mean, they needed to construct houses, tunnels, and bridges. Um, Embedding history in a geometry lesson will engage the interest of students. Um, Consider, for example, how the Mayans created um, right angles. So let me um, show you a little video can you see it? OK, so this is what the students constructed. So they constructed a trapezoid made of three equilateral triangles. And then uh, they, um, the, re- the red rope goes down and to the right on the picture. So this is actually a ceremonial piece of rope with eight knots, where the knots were equally spaced from each other. And they use this to construct a right angle. And I would ask the students to prove why they've come up with right angle. And again, um, we can here go into, um, you know, rhombus made of two equilateral triangles. You know, we have a rhombus and the diagonals intersect at 90 degrees. Um, or you can talk about um, the perpendicular um or the median of an equilateral triangle um, is an angle bisector of 30 degrees in a triangle, uh, plus the 60 makes 90, different ways to prove it. But it's a very interesting um, way um, for students to see what happens. Um, and I have um, done several projects with my students where they have to use rope um, to make a right triangle. and. This has been really interesting um, for my students, so I would really recommend it. Okay, here is another example of that um, I, um, the way I introduce um, construction constructing the perpendicular bisector. So vesica pieces is made of two circles of the same radius. And um, let me show you the picture. OK, so um, this is um, a, a very old, um, Um, picture that you can see like an almond-shaped center of the image is called a mandorla, Latin for almond. And it can easily be seen as a grail or chalice or womb. In any case, these are um, two circles with radius um, two inches. So in other words, the two circles have the same radius. One of the circles is center A, the other circle center B. Uh, B is placed on circle A. So they intersect, the two circles intersect at points C and D. Okay, so um, you can see the picture. We draw segments AB, AC, and C, B, and the students have to prove. Um, they usually right away say that this is an equilateral triangle, and I ask them to prove their observations. So right away, they tell me that... Um, you know, um, A, B, and A, C are radii um, in a circle with center A. CB and A, B are radii in circle with center B. The radii are congruent by construction, so the triangle is equilateral. Um, then we construct the rest of the segments we connect A, B, and D, And now they have to tell me um, what they know about quadrilateral ACBD. Um, Similarly, we prove that ABD is also an equilateral triangle. Now we know that this is a rhombus, four congruent sides. And the angles of the rhombus are 60 and 120, the interior angles. And, um, you know, students, again, have to um, write the proof. And what do we know about the rhombus? Now that we know that this is a rhombus, we know that it's a quadrilateral. We know it's a parallelogram. We know it has four congruent sides. We know it has bisecting diagonals which means that CM is congruent to MD and AM is congruent to MB. And also, diagonals are perpendicular. CD is perpendicular to AB. In fact, CD is a perpendicular bisector of segment AB. In fact, we have constructed a perpendicular bisector. At the same time, we have embedded the construction in a historical context, revealed its importance, and reviewed properties of diagonals of quadrilaterals. Diagonals of quadrilaterals, for me, is one of the essential topics before we do any kinds of constructions. So now students know how to construct a perpendicular bisector by using vesica pieces. Okay, well, I have a next step. What if I have a segment and I would like to bisect it with a perpendicular? What would be one way to do it? Okay, construct circles with same radii, which centers the endpoints of the segment. Okay, is that okay? Again, I have two circles, same radii, right? But what happened? It happened that in the first one, um, the circles intersected at at one point, and in the second one, they didn't intersect. And that's important for students to see what's going to happen if they don't necessarily place the center of the second circle on the first one. So in other words, the students will derive the conclusion that if they would like to bisect um, the segment, they have to construct circles with radii a little longer than halfway the length of the segment. I'm sure that makes perfect sense to everyone. I'm just going through um, an example of what I do to teach this concept. Okay, but what happens if I have two intersecting circles with different radii? They do intersect at two points again, but it's not a rhombus that I get. I still get a quadrilateral. Well, I'm sure you see that this is now a kite. And again, the kite has perpendicular diagonals, right? So this is interesting for students to see what is the application of that. Again, I get perpendicular, but I'm not bisecting the initial segment. And finally, what if I have a segment and I just want to construct a perpendicular, not necessarily a bisector? So here is my segment, here is a point C. I would like to construct a perpendicular through point C to segment AB. So how do I do that? Okay, so I construct a circle. Any radius would be fine. And the idea is that I am cutting part of a segment of AB so that these two points that are intersecting with the circle are equidistant to point C. OK. So I mean, this is just snippets of all the things that I would like to talk to you today. And I really hope that you have some you know, questions for me. So here is the summary of this talk. Um, Students learn by solving problems, for me, variety of problems. Um, I'd like to refer to the problem we solved rather than um, do you remember the postulate? Do you remember the definition? Yes, postulates and definitions are extremely important, but I would like them to be solving problems, exploring, discovering, trying to piece things together. Um, students should be able to use various proof formats um, they should focus on reasoning and not necessarily memorizing, um, you know, um, and, and restating um, um, axioms, postulates. I mean, keep keep what you think is the minimum, and have the rest come. Um, I accept general justification and not exact wording of postulates and theorems. If they just, for example, students say that these pairs are congruent because two parallel lies cut cut, cut by a transversal, that would be enough for me. Um, If um, I very often um, ask students to sketch pictures to understand the problem rather than have the pictures ready and labeled for them. Um, yes, most of the time, students do not draw correctly a picture, but that's okay. Um, this way, they understand what's going on in the problem better, and even from they learn from their mistakes. I teach traditional ideas in context, and especially um, this past semester, when we had to dig um, interesting ideas from the internet and using geometry sketchpad, it was it presented new ideas for teaching that, you know, I didn't think to use before. Um, uh, I always ask why I'm teaching this concept. What does it connect to? If I'm not connecting it and not teaching it anymore till the end of the school year, what's the point of it? What's the big teachers? And am I making students think? Um and at the end of the day, it's, it, it's always about communicating mathematical ideas in such a way that they're accessible for most of the students in my classroom without sacrificing the cognitive demand. Um, and I urge um, others to join me um, in a revolution of high school geometry. Thank you very much for listening to me. I am stopping sharing now.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jenny, for for your presentation today. Um, I didn't see a lot of questions other than there was like a kind of active conversation going on about books and resources. Um, One of the questions that was uh, in the chat was, uh, what resources do you particularly recommend? Um, I mean, I know you mentioned using geometry Geometer Sketchpad. And I know Geogebra was mentioned in here as a a technology Mm -hmm. resource, but do you have any other tech resources or any other uh, book or website resources that you might recommend?
1: Um, Yes, I do use all the time. Hold on, I'll show you, just give me a sec. That's okay. This publication, The Art of Problem Solving is a favorite of mine and they have um introduction to geometry and they have um, solutions manual as well it does um it, it is a, a little bit more complicated, some of the things, but you can pick and choose. Um, all the proofs are given in the textbook and none of them are double column proofs. So it's a really an, an excellent resource for any teacher. Um, Geometry Sketchpad, I see you know in um, um, one of the notes from Rose, Geometry Sketchpad is no longer supported and it's lo- no longer owned by anyone and people have been giving each other passwords to download Geometry Sketchpad for free. I mean, I use um, both GeoGebra and Geometry Sketchpad, but I think the Geometry Sketchpad is a different level, so much better. But honestly, students are very good at GeoGebra, so either way is fine. Yes, I agree with you that, um, you know, that. <laughs> sometimes we suck the the life out of geometry and, and I particularly enjoy so much problems in geometry and um you know I have a couple of actually colleagues that uh, you know when I get a problem to solve in geometry and I get them all the time um if I can't solve it right away I send it to a couple of colleague and colleagues and we start talking about it and it's i I think it's it, it's really really wonderful to get that our students to be contagious in our love for geometry. And it's not gonna happen if we continue to teach the same way as the traditional textbooks. Yep, Desmos is a good place to go.
0: All right, uh, I'm not sure if there's many other questions at this point. Um, Yeah, in case people are wondering about the geometry tool in Desmos, Um, I'm going to put a link in the chat for that, in case you're wondering about uh, Desmos for Geometry.
1: Yeah, I do have um, a progression. Um, In fact, you know, uh, uh, I have several ideas of how the progression goes, um, because in the school that I worked with, the Geometry team, we actually did the whole curriculum. Um, So yes, I'll be happy to share. Um, I'm sure I have my um, email somewhere, correct? Um, so yes please email me and I'll be happy to share it with you
0: yep um can you give us your email again
1: uh, Jasenkova
0: at RW I'll write it <clears throat> I can put it in the chat yeah or you can put it in the chat I'll put it in the chat yes um and then there was another question after you get that typed in the chat yep. Um, The question was, uh, what do you think about the tendency to join algebra and geometry into one math class? Is it a good idea? So I think maybe that person is talking about the fact that, um, you know, some uh, schools have curriculums where it's more of like a math one, math two, math three, and geometry is kind of integrated throughout the sequence of math classes instead of a separate class. So I think they're asking, Um, what do you think about that approach? um,
1: I like the integrated approach. However, it does not have a um, tradition in the United States. Um, Textbooks even that are written, an integrated textbook, the way it's written is chapter one is geometry, chapter two is some algebra part, chapter three back to geometry. So again, it's not integrated in a way one would think they could be. So there were different variations in the school that I was talking about in the several schools in Massachusetts. What they did was um, one teacher taught geometry for two years. So let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you have a geometry, um, the subject of geometry, and it continues throughout the two years. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, for example, was Algebra 1 or Algebra 2. In other words, they had both subjects every week taught by two different teachers. Each subject kind of kept its integrity for easiness, and the students got reinforcement of ideas for two years. So this is, again, probably the easiest way to approach this. But I really think students certainly need more than one year of high school geometry, especially students who are struggling with it. Um, so that that could be a possibility.
0: Um, There was a question from uh, Roberto Alvarez, Uh, what are your thoughts on teaching geometry before algebra one? That's fine, perfectly fine. I mean, again,
1: my my idea is you you could teach them together um, for two years if needed, um, because one year is not enough for geometry for the concept to be retained. So, you teach one year geometry, they'll forget the algebra. Then you have to reteach algebra again the next year. But yes, if you want to keep it, you know, certainly geometry can go before Algebra One. It really is not a problem. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. I think that's actually about it for questions. Um, but I, I thank you for being here today. And I thank you for all the people that uh, posted ideas and, and thoughts in the chat um yeah there was one question about how would that impact students who transfer in after ninth grade um yeah so obviously you know
1: you can't do (laughs)
0: yeah you know you kind of i feel like certain uh states or schools do things in a similar way based on the other schools that are around them in terms of sequencing Mm -hmm. so that there's not that issue if they're just transferring from one local public school to another um you know but that's a up to the individual schools, I guess, to figure out how they're going to do that and, and fill in the gaps that, that student might have in their understanding. Absolutely.
1: For online teaching, yes, I do online teaching. That's another question. And as you saw, I have a um, touch screen on my computer and a stylus. Um, and that's how I've been using it. I use OneNote um, on my computer, which is free that I can share in my screen. And you can OneNote creates notebooks, and OneNote is accessible for for free from anything from any from an Apple or from Microsoft, and you can share it as a notebook to the students as well. So if they have a stylus, they can write with you at the same time. So that was um, something that I used all the time. Yep, Kelo, um, you had geometry and algebra every year starting fifth grade. Absolutely, I agree, it's better and gives us more time to think, to understand, to remember ideas. Please email me with additional questions or if I can help you with anything, it would be my pleasure.
0: All right. thank, thank you for being here today and I thank, thank all of you that uh, showed up for this uh, special edition of the Global Math Department. As I said, we typically don't have any sessions in July, uh, but we happen to have one this year um, since uh, Jenny agreed to uh, do this in July since we had some tech issues earlier um, when we tried to do this in June. So thank you very much for being here um, and the recording will be posted in about 24 hours. Thank you
1: for facilitating this. Oh, oh, you're
0: welcome. You're welcome. Yep. Our next uh, Global Math Department sessions will begin in August. I believe we have uh, people scheduled starting the second week of August. So I hope to see many of you here uh, back here in about a month. Have a lovely afternoon, evening or morning wherever you are.
1: Yes, everybody have a wonderful rest of the summer and beginning of new school year.